Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. The work of Chief Justice Earl Warren and the Warren Court is widely known and fiercely debated for its impact on far-flung fields such as racial equality, privacy, police procedure, and voting rights. Jim Newton, the Los Angeles Times City-County Bureau Chief and author of Justice for All, Earl Warren and the Nation He Made, argues that Warren exported to the nation the values of California progressivism. A native of Bakersfield, California, Warren helped break a potentially catastrophic division in Brown versus Board of Education. He is remembered, fondly by some, with irritation by others, as perhaps the most consequential Chief Justice in American history. Journalist Jim Newton has written extensively about politics, government, and legal affairs. He shared the Pulitzer Prize awarded to the Los Angeles Times for coverage of the 1992 riots and the 1994 Northridge earthquake. He previously worked for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the New York Times. Recorded at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Jim Newton. Thank you, uh, all of you, for coming out tonight. Earl Warren's upbringing in California deeply influenced the man and the justice that he became. He spent the first two-thirds of his life absorbing California and leading it. He was 62 when he went to the United States Supreme Court in 1953. And he spent the last third of his life at the court exporting those ideas into American law and life. That dictates the structure of my book, Justice for All, which is divided into thirds. The first third about Warren growing up in California and assuming his leadership. The second third about uh, presiding over the state. And the third about his time as Chief Justice. That idea that California gave us Warren and that Warren gave us America as we know it is what I hope to talk a bit about tonight. So to begin, California supplied the nation with not one but three enormously important political figures in the second half of the 20th century, uh, Earl Warren, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan. Each exerted a substantial force over the direction of the nation. Each exerted a force that we feel in some sense today. And each left a legacy to be reckoned with. So I'll take them in reverse order quickly. Reagan, first of all. I would argue that Reagan's principal contribution to America was his management of the latter stages of the Cold War. It is fair to say that Reagan significantly raised the cost of fighting the Cold War and thus may well have pushed the Soviets toward their eventual collapse. There are some who disagree with that analysis, but I think any fair look at Reagan must acknowledge that he fought the Cold War vigorously and his conclusion in an American victory is at least in some significant measure to his credit. Domestically, Reagan moved the agenda sharply and lastingly to the right. Not only did he make uh, conservatism fashionable, but he also marginalized liberals and recalculated the practical center of American politics, a recalibration uh, that we still feel the effects of now. Uh, Nixon. Of course, Nixon's lasting achievements uh, were obviously deeply compromised by the Watergate scandal. Indeed, I think it's fair to say that uh, one of Nixon's most profound impacts on American life was in the deepening cynicism that many people felt toward government and in the ethics reforms that were catapulted to the top of the legislative agenda in those years in order to grapple with the crimes committed by his subordinates. 
campaign finance law uh, has come a long way today from where it was in the Nixon era, but our preoccupation with it today is in some way a perverse tribute uh, to the man who inspired it. On a more constructive front, Nixon contributed significantly to American foreign policy, a detente with the Soviets, the opening of relations with China, and he altered the direction and composition of the United States Supreme Court, although not nearly as much as he would have liked. Uh, I will also just mention as an aside here, there is no person in American politics who Earl Warren detested more than Richard Nixon, <laughs> which is a whole other story. Which brings me to Warren. I believe that Warren is uh, uniquely significant among those three great California figures from the 20th century. Uh, first, I believe that his legacy is actually even more important than Reagan's, not for its most apparent impacts, but for its longevity, for its breadth, and for its subtle work in the reshaping of the American landscape, obviously principally through the law, but in politics as well. Second, I would argue that Warren's legacy is more distinctively Californian than that of either Nixon or Reagan. To understand why that is, it's useful, I think, uh, you'll not be surprised to hear, to talk a little bit about his biography. Warren was born in 1891, just about a mile from here. I'm fond of saying that he's the most important person ever born in Los Angeles, though I admit I say that partly just to bug Mayor Viragosa. <laughs> <clears throat> also, I should say he's the most important person born yet in Los Angeles, and that's because my son is only 10 years old. His family left Los Angeles when he was still a young boy, but two memories of his youth remained with him uh, forever and uh, helped define the man that he would become. He never forgot the sounds of a young neighbor who was crying in pain as she died uh, near his home, probably from polio or meningitis, though he couldn't remember what the disease was. He wrote in his memoirs, her anguished cries and the sobbing of her family after her passing gave me a lasting impression of death. Given that he sat down to write his memoirs in his 70s, that is indeed a lasting impression. He was similarly affected by the rumblings of the mob in 1894 when Eugene Debs led the American Railway Union in its historic strike against the Pullman Car Company. Warren's father, uh, Matthias Warren, was a, a union man, a railroad man, who struck with the union. And one night its members uh, gathered in an angry growl outside a union station. They hung a man in effigy, and Warren, then a wide-eyed uh, little boy, watched in horror. That experience, he recalled decades later, quote, gave me a horror of mob action which has remained with me to this day. As a young boy, Warren moved to Bakersfield, which was to be his home for the rest of his youth. Bakersfield at the turn of the century was not exactly the OK Corral, but it was not so different either. It was a distinctly western town, but of a uniquely California sort. It was a railroad depot for the Southern Pacific. Matthias Warren had worked for the Southern Pacific and then been blacklisted from the railroad in Los Angeles for participating in the strike. So the Warren family moved to Bakersfield because it was the only place where the Southern Pacific would take Matthias back. The town was sharply divided by class and race, though its fundamental racial division was not between its white and black residents, but rather between its white residents and its Chinese population. It was a bustling center of gambling and prostitution, with a thick dash of lawlessness. A place where a shootout on Main Street uh, still was an occasional occurrence. In fact, Warren, as a young boy, happened to witness uh, one such one, which also left a deep impression on him. His childhood was pleasant enough. The family was not rich, but he and his sister were well taken care of. They, they had food to eat. They were given uh, books as presents. They had uh, access to a local library. Uh, there were odd jobs that Warren took for extra pay when he left for college. Uh, years later, he left with $800 in money he'd saved up, which was a lot of money in those days. But there was also the palpable impact of life on the frontier. 
Warren, as a teenager, worked for the Southern Pacific during the summer. And the Southern Pacific, uh, I've already mentioned in the context of his father, it was also uh, important that this was the dominant uh, economic and political power in California of that period. Warren's work was to work as a callboy, which meant that he rounded up trainmen uh, and delivered them to their trains when the call was put out for them. That meant dragging them out of saloons and whorehouses and casinos. He was very proud of uh, later in life to say that he never made a man miss his train. He also bore witness uh, to the indignity that was inflicted on labor in those days. He saw men squander their salaries in the company store, and he winced as he watched them terribly injured, crushed between trains, and, and uh, operated on in the surgery of the day, which was to cut off the injured limb with an electric saw in the, in the lathe in the train yard. So already, by the time Warren arrived in Bakersfield as a very young person, he had a, this aversion to disorder. As a teenager, that aversion deepened, and he grafted to it distaste of vice and a distrust of big business. Uh, each of those strains, visible very early in his life, stayed with him throughout it, including in his court years. From Bakersfield, Warren moved to Berkeley, where he went to college and then later to law school. And there, he really came of age. He was a very shy, small young man. In Berkeley, he physically filled out. He developed into a much more uh, garrulous and outgoing guy. Uh, he was a fraternity man, loved his fraternity. And he did so just as California was uh, bulldozing its way into a new politics in the state. Warren had dreamed in high school of becoming a trial lawyer, which is a sort of unusual dream uh, for such a shy boy, but it really came to life again in Berkeley. As a college student, he had the chance to watch one of the most arresting trial lawyers of his generation. Hiram Johnson was a young lawyer in San Francisco uh, when he was called upon to take over the corruption case against the city's mayor. And he was called upon to do it when his co-prosecutor was shot in the head in court by a dismissed juror. Which says something about jury service, I suppose. But, uh, Johnson made his name in that case, and the case being tried right there as Warren was in college. And then, of course, as you all know, went on to serve as governor and to spearhead a singular uh, political movement in the history of California, which was the rise of the California progressives. The progressives were, by today's delineations, a bit of a strange hybrid. They were not, importantly, populist. They were largely middle class. Many were small businessmen, small business owners. They very much objected and rose up partly in opposition to the Southern Pacific and its political influence, but they did not propose to throw in uh, entirely with organized labor. They loathed corruption and vice. Um, they were bourgeois and moderate in their politics. They managed to simultaneously deplore both the smoke-filled room and the saloon, one for them symbolized corporate uh, dominance in their state, and the other stood for a kind of a sweaty waste, a squandering of the working class. In all those respects, Warren perfectly embodied progressivism. He was, in many respects, the most successful progressive uh, in California history. And as governor, notably, uh, Warren hung just one portrait in his office, and it was that of Hiram Johnson. <laughs> You're listening to journalist and author Jim Newton discussing Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. This is Zocalo. Mark your calendar for thought-provoking live events as the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series takes its show on the road. On February 20th, the irascible columnist, novelist, essayist, and critic Stanley Crouch discusses what he calls the trouble with black popular culture in a lecture at the Center for Healthy Communities at the California Endowment in downtown Los Angeles. And on March 6th, 
Eric Alterman, prolific author, media critic, and columnist for The Nation, visits Zocalo at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy to explore the emergence of what he calls America's pseudo-democracy. As always, these events are free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We return now to Jim Newton speaking on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. Progressivism was responsible for many good things in California. It fought corruption, it championed better working conditions, shorter uh, labor days. Uh, it brought the state the initiative and the recall. You can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, it's had its good moments and bad. But uh, progressivism had its notable drawbacks. And most notable of those was that its founders were conspicuously unsympathetic to the claims of minorities. California's working class in those early decades of the 20th century was largely suspicious of immigrant labor, particularly Asian railroad workers and farmers. And the progressives helped forge uh, a political alliance with labor and against big business by adopting much of labor's antipathy for Asians. In his case, tragically, Warren accepted without much thought the indifference uh, that the progressives had toward minorities. That was most terribly apparent in 1942, uh, when Warren, who was then the Attorney General of California, enthusiastically championed the internment of the state's Japanese and Japanese Americans. Their safety was his responsibility as Attorney General. Uh, Their incarceration was the nation's shame, and it was Warren's as well. With his blessing and approval, the federal government incarcerated 110,000 people who were charged with no crime. Warren never in his lifetime could find the words to apologize for that act. In his memoirs, which were published after his death, he notes that I have since come to regret, uh, as the operative phrase, my support for the internment. Interestingly, as it appears in his memoirs, it says, I have since come to deeply regret, but he had such a difficult time apologizing for it that the word deeply was only added after he died by his editor. As governor, Warren compiled a far better record. He championed universal health insurance, which is amazingly timely uh, this week. Uh, um, It's uh, it's hard to believe that 60 years later we're going to fight it out one more time on this. Warren lost, as is evidenced by the fact that we're talking about it 60 years later. Warren did not get his way on universal health insurance in California. His efforts in California helped convince the White House, the Truman White House, to support Medicare, but he lost time and again here despite fighting it out. He supported equal access in housing, he raised gas taxes to pay for road construction, and he flogged uh, the government to absorb wave after wave of migrant uh, after World War II. Uh, He liked to say that every Monday morning there were 10,000 more people in California, and that it was his job to give them sewers and water and electricity and police. One of my favorite quotes of his is in his second inaugural address in California. He describes that task of making room for these migrants, and he says, our task will not be easy, but it can be thrilling which I think captures the certain vivacity that he had for the job of being governor. He also signed the Brown Act, which gave California its open meetings rules, much abused these days, but with a noble history nonetheless. And in a, uh, in a little-noticed act, he signed the bill that ended legal racial segregation in California schools, which I'll talk more about in a minute. He was, through all of that, a gigantically dominant force in California politics. He is the only three-term governor in the history of California, and thus held that office longer than any other person. He was elected in 1942, in 1946, and in 1950, each one an amazing race in its own right. 
1942, he beat an incumbent Democrat, Colbert Olson, despite the fact that FDR was in the White House and was an immensely popular figure in the middle of a war. And he ran uh, in that race in a state where the voter registration was overwhelmingly Democratic. In 1950, his uh, third election, he not only won the election, but this time beat someone even closer to FDR, which is FDR's son, Jimmy Roosevelt. And he did so by more than a million votes. And in the interim election in 1946, some of you may know, he achieved the remarkable feat of winning not just the nomination of California Republicans for re-election, he was a lifelong Republican, but that of state Democrats as well, who nominated Warren too. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Uh, in 1953, it was uh, Dwight Eisenhower who tapped Warren to become Chief Justice of the United States, a decision that Eisenhower would come to regret. Warren accepted the position as a recess appointment, another hard-to-imagine thing in today's politics, but that meant that he occupied the office before ever being confirmed by the United States Senate. He served from October of 1953 until March of 1954 without confirmation. He left California on a Saturday and was sworn in on Monday morning as Chief Justice of the United States. The new Chief Justice distinctly bore the imprint of his native state, our state. He was a progressive Republican. He had come to office and held it by California's voting rules, forged very much in a tradition of progressivism. He liked electoral politics. He was a good politician. He was angered by corruption and infuriated by vice. He was familiar with racism and had indeed succumbed to it, but even that was of a sort of peculiar or particularly California variant, a yielding to discrimination of, against Asians in a time of war. Warren thus was, I think, in each of those areas, for better and for worse, distinctly a Californian. His rise through California politics had been one of steadily expanding horizons. There are many people who have wrestled with the question of whether Warren had a sort of transformative event as Chief Justice. I don't think that's the right way to think about Warren's growth. I think the better way to think about it is a sort of expanding set of circles. First, he was a district attorney in Alameda County, responsible for essentially one issue in one small place, law enforcement in Alameda. His next step was to become Attorney General for California, meaning that he still was largely responsible for law enforcement, but now for the entirety of the state. Then he became governor and was responsible for all manner of issues uh, over the entirety of California. And then finally, as he moved to the Chief Justiceship, he had his first opportunity to express his ideology and his upbringing on a national scale. The effect was immediately apparent in Warren's first major opinion, Brown versus Board of Education. The Brown case had been argued before the court prior to Warren's arriving there. It had been argued in the previous term under then Chief Justice Fred Vinson. It was held over because the court could not reach a resolution on it. Felix Frankfurter, one of the justices, devised what in effect was a stall because he was worried about the effects of a divided court. And then he moved that the court asked for more argument in the case and the other justices went along. Then Vinson died. In September of 53, Frankfurter was famously uh, reported to have said that that was the first solid evidence he had of the existence of God. Um, <clears throat> it, uh, it's impossible, I think it's only fair to say, to know exactly how the court would have come down had Vincent lived. But notes from the conference and recollections of the justices in various forums suggest that at best the court would have struck school segregation by a vote of six to three and that the Chief Justice Vincent would have been among the dissenters. At worst, it's possible that it could have gone five to four to uphold segregation. The latter would have been a, a pure catastrophe for race relations, but I think even a split vote striking segregation would have been calamitous. 
it would have clearly heartened and emboldened segregationists to find such support for their cause in the United States Supreme Court, all the more so because the Chief Justice would likely have been with them. The job confronting Warren in his first term then was nothing less than a defining test of American race relations. And as he took over Brown, uh, it mattered that he came from neither North nor South. He was a Westerner and thus, as such, less invested in the institutions that were being debated between North and South, that were being challenged and defended. And also, although this was quite interestingly really not recognized at the time, Warren had played a, a very important role in dismantling segregated schools in California, which I alluded to earlier. In 1945, a group of parents in Orange County filed suit against California's so-called Mexican schools, where the racial alignments were frankly ver- barely less odious than the Deep South's discrimination against blacks. In the uh, Westminster School District, for instance, one of the challenged school districts, they had two schools that educated elementary-aged children. The Westminster School had 628 Anglo students and 14 of Latino heritage. The Hoover School nearby had 152 students, all of them Latino, no white. There were various devices, various uh, pretexts for keeping these kids in school that they were not English-speaking, but it didn't matter how proficient you were in English, you were never allowed to leave a Mexican school. They were racially segregated schools. The suit uh, by the parents in the Mendez case was filed pre-Brown. Of course, we're talking about 1945, and Brown's not until 1953-54. And thus, it was filed in an era where the Supreme Court sanctioned separate but equal schools. Nevertheless, a quite brave district court judge here in Southern California, Paul McCormick, struck down the Mexican schools. And his uh, case was appealed by the school districts, and it was upheld by the Ninth Circuit, although on very narrow grounds. The matter could have ended there, and that would have struck the Mexican schools in Orange County districts, but the Ninth Circuit's ruling did not force the state to address other aspects of discrimination in its schools. And the result is that had the matter ended there, the state education code would still have included language that permitted separate schools for Chinese and other Asian students. Instead of that, in in June of 1947, with very little fanfare, Warren signed the legislation that struck the language and ended formal segregation in California schools. You're listening to Jim Newton, Los Angeles Times City-County Bureau Chief, speaking on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo Radio is available as a podcast. To sign up for a podcast subscription, go to our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. Click on Zocalo Radio, hit the podcast button, and enjoy hours of thought-provoking interviews. We'll return to Jim Newton's talk on Earl Warren in just a moment. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., We return now to Jim Newton, the Los Angeles Times City-County Bureau Chief, speaking on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. So the Warren who now, uh, a number of years later, came to the Warren court, he knew racism and he knew schools. And most importantly, he knew politics. His management of the court through that period, when he had been its chief for less than a year, alone, I argue, would earn him a position of greatness in American history. 
the Chief Justice has the prerogative in the United States Supreme Court in the conference of the court to speak first. Normally the justices speak in order of seniority, but the Chief Justice is exempt from that by tradition. And so when the justices had their first conference on Brown in December of 1953, uh, he exercised his prerogative to speak first. And in his first remarks, he made it clear that he would join those who would vote to strike segregation. That immediately meant that there, as the other justices obviously knew where they stood uh, on this issue, that meant that there was a clear majority with the chief justice in the majority to strike segregation. He also said that he could find no way philosophically to uphold segregation without the court reaching a finding that blacks were inferior to whites. That had another important effect because two of the justices, Frankfurter and Jackson, were highly liberal in their politics but also very committed to a restrained judiciary. It was one thing, though, for Felix Frankfurter to take a position of restraint and therefore to have reservations about voting with, uh, to strike segregation in Brown. It was another for him to be in dissent against an opinion that was going to accuse him of racism. Felix Frankfurter was the first justice to have a black clerk. He had worked for the NAACP, he'd worked for the ACLU. This altered the landscape for him quite significantly and for Jackson. Warren then exercised a tactical option, I think, that was incredibly important to his success, which is that he could have asked for a vote that day in conference. In fact, it is traditional that after each of the justices states their position in order of seniority, then they vote in, order, in reverse order of seniority. But Warren asked that they not vote that day. He was worried about them freezing into their positions too soon. So instead, he opted for a longer conversation in which he could, allow, he could be allowed to do what he did best, which was to lobby. He's a politician. He was good at it. He also did his lobbying quite gently. He declined to blame the South for its adoption of Jim Crow. When he was working with uh, Justice Clark, who was from Texas, he made it clear that he would not push too hard in the decree to force quick desegregation. He proposed to limit the ruling only to schools when he could have argued for a broader, more sweeping condemnation of segregation in public institutions. He painstakingly worked on Jackson and Frankfurter uh, by emphasizing that the court could find support for its decision in law and precedent. Robert Jackson had a heart attack in the middle of the deliberations on Brown, and Warren would go to him in the hospital and talk to him. In fact, when they finally set down the ruling, it was the day Jackson left the hospital and he came to be part of the announcement of the ruling. For months, Warren worked them over lunches and in hallway corridors and exchanges of memos, and one by one, he lined up all his votes. Finally, there was only one justice left, Stanley Reed. Stanley Reed was quite committed to segregation. He had refused a few years earlier even to attend a Supreme Court Christmas party if the black pages were to be allowed to attend. But finally, Warren went to Reed and said, and his quote is, Stan, you're all by yourself now. You've got to decide whether it's really the best thing for the country. And with that, Reed's patriotism overwhelmed his racism, and he folded. Brown, as you all know, was a unanimous decision of the court written by Warren. It was the work of a man who had seen fit just 11 years earlier to intern a, a people whose race made them suspect. But it was also the work of a governor who had done his best to make amends. It was won by an experienced politician who grew up in the sharply divided and racially challenging landscape of California, uh, whose history of segregation he had helped cleanse. It was the first evidence of Warren's life in California informing his judicial philosophy, but it was not his, the last. Years later, when Warren was preparing to leave the court in 1969, he was asked which of its rulings over his period he considered its most important. The natural assumption is that he would choose Brown, which most scholars regard as the most important case of the 20th century. 
He surprised reporters uh, who posed the question, though, by instead citing the court's work in voting rights, starting with Baker versus Carr. Those cases were monumentally significant in their own right, but Warren's decision to give them first position in his own history uh, was curious and noted um, much remarked upon at the time. The reason they resonated so strongly with him, though, I believe, as with so many issues, dates back to his time in California and in elected politics. As governor, Warren had seen little reason to quibble with California's voting rules, which in those years elected legislators to the Assembly and Senate by two different systems. Assembly members were elected by population and senators by county. That had the effect of giving rural counties more relative representative strength than urban counties. Los Angeles, for instance, had more assembly members than a Butte or Imperial County, but had the same number of senators, despite its bigger population. Warren presided over that system and prospered by it. Now, he understood its inequities, but he accepted them, he said later, as a matter of political expedience. But then Warren became Chief Justice, and from that vantage point, he saw what the imbalance did, especially in the South. It enhanced the voting strength of whites and did so at the expense of minorities, particularly urban blacks. So with the experience of having been California's governor and now the reach of being America's chief justice, he struck those rules down. Baker, uh, Baker versus Carr, was actually written by William Brennan in 1962. Brennan was Warren's closest friend and ally in the court, and the two worked closely on the decision. It established the principle that the court could intervene to consider the appropriateness and the constitutionality of state legislative districts. Two years later, uh, Reynolds versus Sims completed the work of Baker, and in that case, by overturning Alabama's electoral system by finding that it violated the rules set down in Baker. So important was that opinion that Warren took it upon himself to write it, and uh, that's especially important to note because it came to the court in the same year that Warren served as chairman of the Warren Commission. That year, from the end of 1963 through nearly the end of 1964, the 10 months there, were an intensely grueling and upsetting period in Warren's life. For those 10 months, he accepted the chairmanship of the Warren Commission only very reluctantly, only after Johnson made it a a call to his patriotism. Johnson who sort of always knew how to work a person. But he refused to give up the chief justiceship. So for those 10 months, he would arrive at the Warren Commission first thing in the morning, preside over its hearings till 10, Then he would leave the Warren Commission, walk down the block to the United States Supreme Court, put on his robes, preside over the United States Supreme Court until the end of the court day, then return to the Warren Commission, work with the Warren Commission until evening, and then take his legal reading home with him and often fall asleep with it in his lap. He was 72 years old at the time, and no period in his life took a greater toll. His friends and family recall him losing weight and being distraught. It was only uh, near the end, the only relief that his wife could think to get him was to call his best friend and ask him to take him to the World Series, which he loved to do, which I like about him. Through that whole period, Warren kept command of his court, and he won his majority in the Reynolds versus Sims case. Warren's belief in voters came through loud and clear in uh, Baker and in Reynolds and in a number of other cases in that period. The Warren court, for instance, ended poll taxes and literacy tests, um, both devices that were put in place to restrict voting as much as possible to whites. You're listening to Jim Newton, Los Angeles Times City County Bureau Chief, speaking on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. This is Zocalo. 
You know about Zocalo Radio, but have you checked out Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series? In the coming weeks, the eclectic, roving lecture series will feature the irascible columnist Stanley Crouch discussing what he calls the trouble with black popular culture. And Eric Alterman, prolific author and media critic, visits Zocalo to explore the emergence of what he calls America's pseudo-democracy. As always, these events are free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We now return to Jim Newton speaking on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. In one sense, it's just sort of charming to analyze Warren's faith in voters. It is not hard to understand why a man who won seven elections would think that voters were unusually perceptive. (laughs) But the voting cases, I think, demonstrate more than just his personality. They also highlight his upbringing in California. Uh, Remember, it was the progressives who really championed voting reform in California, who gave the state its referendum and its recall. They very much saw voters as the antidote to corporate domination and government secrecy, and Warren agreed. That was Warren's tradition in the first half of the 20th century, and once he was done with his work at the court, it was an American tradition as well. There are two more fields I'd like to mention quickly tonight in which Warren's life in California profoundly affected the decisions he made as Chief Justice. In one area, he carried the court to all of our great benefit, and in the other, he failed. And that, I think, represents a rare instance in which we're better off for Warren's inability to carry a court first where he succeeded. As I mentioned, Warren spent much of his life as a prosecutor and in a particular time and place. He began his life prosecuting subversives, bootleggers, and gamblers, along with corrupt county supervisors and sheriffs. Thankfully, we're rid of in today's life. (laughs) Early in his life, in fact, as Alameda DA, he tried a very important case in which he put away a corrupt sheriff who also happened to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And he broke up a corruption ring that was giving away uh, paving contracts in return for kickbacks to Alameda County public officials. The political tradition that he upheld then and later was one of clean government. His insistence in the 1920s and again in the 1960s was on professionalism and on fairness. Those ideas express themselves throughout his rise through California politics, but they also find real voice in a historic line of cases during his tenure as Chief Justice. In 1961, the court ruled that illegally seized evidence may not be introduced in state trials. Dolry Mapp, Mapp versus Ohio being the case, was prosecuted for possessing smut after officers burst into her home and rifled it without a warrant. Uh, Up to that point, it was unconstitutional to introduce illegally seized evidence in a federal trial, but it was still permitted in state trials. The Warren Court overturned her conviction. In 1963, the court ruled that poor defendants were entitled to lawyers in state trials. That's the famous Gideon case. Clarence Gideon uh, was given a new trial by the court. In 1966, the court ruled, in what may be even the best known of these cases, Miranda, that all suspects have the right to be informed of their rights. As you well know, the right to remain silent, to speak with an attorney, to have an attorney provided if you can't afford one. Ernesto Miranda, the defendant in that case, was also given a new trial. In personal terms, the results of the Warren Court's criminal justice were somewhat mixed. Clarence Gideon, given a second chance, made the most of it and returned to his life. Ernesto Miranda, unfortunately, was tried again and convicted again, this time because he had confessed not to a police officer but to his girlfriend who testified against him. He uh, was not freed until 1972, and he was only out for two months before he was stabbed to death in a bar fight. 
Weirdly, the men suspected of killing him were read their Miranda rights, and, and they declined to speak. Um, they were let go, and by the time the government had enough evidence to prosecute him, they'd fled, and uh, Ernesto Miranda's murder is still technically unsolved. In political terms, if that, if that has a sort of ambiguous result in personal terms, in political terms, they were regarded quite clearly, which is to say they were deplored. They unleashed a huge public wrath against the court, as they often ended up in giving a convicted criminal his freedom or a second chance in it. Warren was untroubled by the reaction, even as it contributed to the uh, famous or infamous Impeach Earl Warren movement that was sponsored by the Birch Society throughout the 1960s. To Warren, those rulings uh, might and did enrage the public, but they were the natural outgrowth of his lifelong insistence on police and prosecutorial professionalism. In one area, though, I think Warren's upbringing did not serve him so well. His aversion to vice, which was so much a part of his youth and young adulthood, which was so ingrained in his progressivism, carried over into his analysis of pornography. He was quite simply outraged by pornography. He used to say that if anyone showed this to his daughter, he'd wring his neck. He had three daughters and was very, very protective of them and deeply offended uh, by the notion that they would be confronted with this smut. Those were noble personal instincts, but they really did not help Warren through the complicated question of how much expression the First Amendment protected under the Constitution. He tried year after year to fashion a rule that was consistent with his upbringing. He tried to devise a notion that the court could somehow protect speech but punish those who peddled smut. But it always begged the question of sort of, how can a person be put in jail for distributing something that the Constitution protects? The fact is that Warren never solved that question, and his inability to do so was part of the reason the court drifted helplessly through the pornography cases. Here, I would argue that it's Warren tried to export a lesson of his California upbringing, but simply failed. And that, however, is the exception that highlights the rule. In one field after another, Earl Warren wrote law that drew upon his life in California and made this nation a far better and more mature place. Given our time tonight, I've skipped over some big cases, but let me just say in passing that the Warren Court also established a rule of libel, the notion that public officials may not recover damages from news organizations, even when the stories are false, unless they can show that they were published with malice or recklessness. This happens to be a personal favorite uh, ruling of the Warren Court. <laughs> And it interpreted the Bill of Rights, as many of you know, as implicitly adopting a theory of privacy. This is in the so-called Griswold versus Connecticut case. The Bill of Rights, as you know, explicitly protects speech and assembly and religious practice from government intrusion. The government may pass no laws, the First Amendment says, that interferes with those rights. It also bars the government from quartering soldiers in homes and requires police to secure warrants before they conduct a search. Together, the Warren Court, in this case led by Justice Douglas, concluded that the first 10 amendments together establish a zone of privacy around every person. The government may, in fact, even under Griswold, intrude on that privacy, but only after taking steps consistent with the Constitution. Taken as a whole, those rulings and the rest of the work of the Warren Court established a, an expansive and robust liberal libertarianism. Warren and his colleagues protected the dispossessed and empowered the government to address inequity, while at the same time restraining it from intruding on personal privacy. That's a hybrid worthy of any Western progressive. There are those today who would have you believe that what the Warren Court created was a, a creaky architecture of, of liberalism, a sort of wispy fog of lefty fantasy, a reckless activism, barely connected to the Constitution that rooted it. Some of those who say that are, are mistaken. There are ones who know better, and I would argue to you that they're lying. The fact is that Warren was not a lefty. He was a father of six, a good one, 
he was a member of the Bohemian Club. He was a grandmaster of the Masons in California. He was a veteran who served his country in World War I. He was a Republican, and he was deeply and movingly a patriot. Under his stewardship, this is what the, and pardon me here, the Californization of America meant. It meant that segregated schools were ruled unconstitutional. So were beaches and parks and other public facilities. States that gave white voters more power than blacks were ordered to stop. Poor defendants were given lawyers to represent them. Police were reminded that the Constitution requires a warrant before they may ransack a home. People who were arrested were reminded that they had a right to a lawyer. Public officials who sought to squelch dissent were warned that this is a country founded on the appreciation of disputatiousness. Bureaucrats who presumed that they could write prayers and order children to recite them in school were snapped back to attention with the admonition that prayer in this country is the rightful province of religious leaders, not government officials. And police who took it upon themselves to arrest married couples who dared to purchase contraceptives were ordered to back off. I would like to conclude tonight by asking this. Which of those principles would anyone here tonight, liberal or conservative, disavow? Do any of us believe that we would have a better country if public schools discriminated by race? Is anyone here tonight prepared to defend the proposition that trials would be fairer if poor people had to represent themselves? Would you like your children to recite a prayer every morning written by Antonio Villaraigosa or Mike Antonovich or Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> <clears throat> Even in the area of privacy, where this nation's endless and depressing and destructive debate over abortion can at times seem to cloud all other values, can we not at least agree that it is not a liberal position to maintain that the government should respect an individual's freedom? Together, the landmark cases of the Warren Court comprise a vision of government that helps its neediest while resisting the temptation to overreach, a government that sets parameters of decency but recognizes its limits, that acknowledges that there is a difference between a public school and a private home. That is a great legacy of moderation, one befitting a man who defined the center in California and who went on to redefine it for America. It is a center that we have lost and one that I believe we should reclaim. One where liberty and rectitude exist side by side. One where patriotism is synonymous with, not undermined by vigorous dissent. One of decency and free expression in equal measure. It is one, uh, I submit, of justice for all. Thank you. You're listening to Jim Newton speaking on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Next Sunday, be sure to tune in or click on Zocalo Radio when we present Tuning in the Broadband Channel, How the Internet is Remaking the TV Business, a discussion on how the Internet is changing everything for TV networks, their producers, and service providers. Moderated by John Healy of the Los Angeles Times editorial page. How important would it be to you to be able to get straight to TV sets through the internet to millions, tens of millions of TV sets without having to strike deals with a, with a cable operator with a, with a, or even with a network? Blair, why don't you start off? We don't have the history of, of sort of facing this problem because we're, you know, I suppose what we call a pure internet play, at least prior to joining Viacom. Um, you know, from 98, we were building this as a pure internet business. And I think there's, there's a gap between 
today and where this converges in the not too distant future. Because at the moment, the novelty of having all this programming available on demand is still apparent. You know, it's the same sort of surprise and excitement and novelty that we had with music in the Napster days about six years ago. You know, the, the blocking and tackling that's been done is just getting the stuff online at all. And now the business models are emerging, the usage models are emerging and, and so forth. So in the near future, everything will be, this is going to sound like a sort of trite, obvious remark, but everything will be everywhere. You know, it will be the case that all the content will be available in effectively real time on all devices. And the programmers and people who are currently sort of schedulers for television will be schedulers for this myriad devices and different times of day. And they'll be conscious of where people are and what they're doing 24 hours a day. The task will be in sort of managing, you know, how to schedule this content for release and, and how to get it to people rather than connecting up disparate networks, like trying to figure out how to hop from cable to internet to wireless to television, because all that will naturally blend together. That's next Sunday at 9 p.m. or listen anytime with your podcast subscription. In a moment, Jim Newton takes questions from Zocalo's audience. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Jim Newton discussing Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. In this segment, Zocalo's audience joins the conversation. Today's Supreme Court is very ideological, and they can anticipate ahead of time how certain justices will vote, and the swing votes, O'Connor, and anyway. I don't remember courts in the days of, of Warren that the people could anticipate what the vote would be. And it seems to me that in, even in high school, we used to even read court decisions. I mean, there's so much sarcasm now between the court and the attorneys. It seems to me in those days, it was almost literary, their decisions, and so civil, I guess. <laughs> Am I reading something into it, or was there really a difference? Certainly there's a difference. Um, there are many differences between the court now and then. There were some beautiful writers in the Supreme Court in Warren's day. Robert Jackson was a highly stylish writer. Warren, frankly, wasn't a particularly stylish writer, but he was a very clean and basic writer. I do think internally, I think the court was a, probably a more amicable place in those days, and I think Warren deserves some credit for that. He used to take the court to the Army-Navy game every year, and they'd bring their spouses and their wives, obviously, they were all men. There are other ways in which the court is different today, and I don't know how much this manifests itself in the, the sort of tone of the place, but it is obviously a more diverse place, the mere fact that there are women and minorities who serve on the court. In Warren's court, it was all white men. It was, however, a more diverse place in a different sense, which is that the court under Warren was much less drawn from the judiciary. Warren, of course, had never been a judge when he went to the court, but he was one of five justices when he arrived who had not been a judge. Felix Frankfurter had been a law professor. Robert Jackson had been attorney general. William Douglas had been the head of the SEC. And uh, Hugo Black had been a United States senator. So there was a 
an array of views and of life experiences that I think is broader than today's court. And I think the court today suffers from it. How much that plays out into the particulars of what you're saying of the writing quality or of the amicability of the place, I don't know. But there are ways in which it was a distinctively different place. How would you compare the Warren Court to the John Marshall Court from the very early times? I just finished a, a biography of John Marshall, and what you're describing is reminiscent a little bit about what I had read, this idea that he brought the court together uh, in a congenial fashion, sought out uh, unanimity, people from different life experiences, and of course, these hugely significant cases. Uh, yes, I don't hold myself out to be an expert on the Marshall Court, but many people draw the comparison between Marshall and Warren. And certainly I think many people would argue that they were the two most significant chief justices in American history. Interestingly, the Marshall, of course, the Marshall Court is best known for its establishing of the principle of judicial review. Having done so, it never used it again. So it's incredibly important in a foundational sense for what the court later became. But Warren himself was much more willing to wield the tools that Marshall gave him than Marshall was even himself. That said, I think there are other similarities in the sense that I was just talking about it, and people being drawn from many different walks of life and the sense of amicability. And uh, so, yeah, I do think that there are parallels. When he was doing double duty on the Warren Commission, mm -hmm. do you think it was detrimental to the outcome of the commission's decision or view, or um, was he tired? He was tired. I, I think that there are some problems with the Warren Commission's work in the in the report. I don't believe that they compromise the ultimate findings of the Warren Commission, which I believe you know, the a lone shooter, you know, a single shooter acting alone, responsible for the assassination of the president. Uh, I think that fundamental finding has stood up quite well at the time. There are some areas where I think Warren made mistakes personally and the commission. I wouldn't attribute them to fatigue, though, so much as to a, an overprotectiveness and identification that he felt with the Kennedy family. He loved John Kennedy, was very fond of Jackie. And there are a number of instances, for instance, his decision, and it was his decision, not to include the autopsy photos in the report. He felt that it offended him, that there was a ghoulishness about the idea of having people gawk at pictures of the dead president. That was, a, I think, a natural human reaction but one that did not serve the commission well in the long run for those who would see it with suspicion. Similarly, although less importantly, he made the decision not to call Jackie Kennedy to the commission, but rather went to her house with the executive director of the commission and a stenographer and took her testimony in a more private setting. That didn't have the same consequences as omitting the autopsy photos, but it's further evidence of his sort of protectiveness that he brought to it. I do think that those were mistakes in that they gave those who later would see the commission as duped or as part of a conspiracy, it would give them material to work with. I really don't believe, though, that they undermine the ultimate findings of the commission. Is California still importing its values to the nation? If the process is stopped, when did it stop and why? You know, question two, you know, there are certain limits that are placed on the different uh, uh, branches of government here in our society, you know, but it's, it's, it's a state in the Constitution. I was just wondering, you know, what role did that play with Warren and ruling on cases, you know, the limitations of the judicial branch, you know, because according to uh, a very uh, contemporary definitions between what is a strict constructionist and an ideologue, you know, uh, Warren didn't really care uh, about the legislative branch of government when he was ruling on cases. Well, that's a lot of questions in one, but let me just say yes. As to California's continuing, uh, <laughs> right, and that's it, thank you. Um, as to California's sort of continuing role and a leadership role in the nation, I think by virtue of its size today, there's no question but that California continues to be a stimulus to sort of political development in the country. 
There may not be a particular Californian who is leading it in the same way that Warren did in his period, but that isn't to say that the ideas of California aren't migrating their way into the sort of lifeblood of the country's politics. As to the, the Warren's view of the limitations of the judiciary, the fact is he didn't see many. I think while it is wrong to accuse Warren and his court of reckless activism, it is not wrong to accuse them of activism. And I would only uh, pause on the word accuse. I think he quite proudly saw himself as an activist uh, judge. He saw Felix Frankfurter, who was his principal adversary in the debate over activism versus restraint, as sort of shirking his duty. Cases come to the court, and the most fundamental limitation on the court's authority is that it cannot generate the cases that it gets. It can pick them, but it has to pick and choose from what comes to it. Once cases arrived at the court, Warren saw it as his duty to resolve them, and he saw anything less than that as the court falling short of what it had an obligation to do. That led him into a very expansive view of the role of the Supreme Court. Um, others will disagree. I, I would say, just in connection with that, though, that there's a tendency to say that activism is necessarily liberal and restraint is ne necessarily conservative. That is not true. Frankfurter and Jackson, who were the real advocates, especially Frankfurter because he was there longer, the real advocate of restraint was, as I mentioned earlier, ideologically a liberal. He's an FDR appointee, a Democrat. Some of these things have gotten sort of flipped over time, but I think it is certainly correct to say that Warren saw the judiciary and the Supreme Court as playing an active and continuing uh, role in the life of the country, and he was quite happy to do so. You mentioned earlier about Warren and having run for elective office and been governor and so on. And now, I guess, Senator Day of Connor maybe was the last mm -hmm. of recent times someone who's run for elective office. How important do you think that was, say, in the characteristics of justice of any sort? And in, how important was it for him uh, in, say, persuading people that, you know, public will put up with this? And I know because I ran for office, so I'm closer to them than other people might be. I think it was important in that way, particularly in the voting cases, in that he had expertise about voting. I mean, in some cases, a sort of naivete. I mean, I think he may have seen voters as more able to deliver a solution than they could. And then we've learned over time there are limitations on what voters can do, too. But in that sense, I think he was quite important in the voting cases because he brought something to the table. He knew something about elected politics. So did Hugo Black, who served with him, but had been a senator. In a less tangible way, though, I think the other thing that he brought with him is a politician's abilities. He always remembered people's names. He remembered where their kids went to college. He was wonderful at marshalling the personal detail about a person. People always remembered Earl Warren as standing two or three inches taller than him. The fact is he was six feet tall, and a lot of people who remembered him standing taller than him were taller than he was. He had a presence, though, a charisma. And I think it's tempting to think of the Supreme Court as a sort of law factory, but the fact is it is nine people who, who come together day after day, issue after issue. They have to disagree and then reassemble. They have to fight it out on one and then be allies on the next. It is extremely helpful in a continuing body like that to have a person who's skillful at working it in the best sense of politics. And so I think, now, I mean, not every politician has worn skills as a politician, and just because one is elected to office doesn't mean they're great at those things. But I think in his case, a politician skills served him quite well as Chief Justice. I think, for instance, and this is a little bit off your point, but I don't think he would have been half as effective as an Associate Justice. I think it was very important that he had the Chief Justice role because it allowed him to lead the court without subverting a Chief Justice. He had the title, and he used it. What ever happened to progressive Republicans like Warren? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one. 
Well, I don't know, is the short answer. There are not, uh, obviously, I think that uh, as I talk to people about the book uh, and about Warren, I get very often a sense of nostalgia for what is a sort of missing part of the political spectrum these days. And I think it's too bad. I mean, as I said earlier, I think the progressives were not all good, but they did uh, represent a sort of creative center in American politics that is woefully missing now. You've been listening to Los Angeles Times City County Bureau Chief Jim Newton. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marco Spromer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>